Thanks for joining me on the e-commerce school podcast. I'm Andrew Udarian, and I've got Cameron Walker with me today, who is the president of Gifts Home and Hardware Group at Global Sources. Uh, Cameron, welcome, sir. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on the show, Andrew. Yeah, good to have you, and I uh, appreciate you getting up early. I know it's 8 a.m. over in Hong Kong time, and and you work with, as I mentioned, uh, Global Sources, which is a you know a sourcing company, really connecting factories and merchants and suppliers here in, in, in the U.S., at least as far as I understand. But can you give a sense, like, is that, I'm sure it goes deeper than that. Can you give people a sense of who you are? Because everyone, you know, everyone, of course, here's Alibaba, and you guys do similar things, but can you kind of dive into that a little bit? Who are you guys and how are you different? Sure, no problem. So what Global Sources is, is we're a B2B media company. We've been around for 45 years in the industry. You know, what we, did, what we do is like what you said, we connect buyers and sellers at the beginning. So 45 years ago, we mainly used uh, trade magazines. But in the past, you know, 20 years, we've moved into online. So we have an online catalog at globalsources.com. And then we also have, uh, we're an organizer of trade shows. So we're actually one of the biggest trade show organizers in Hong Kong. Our online catalog is globalsources.com, which I think probably many of your um, listeners probably have seen. Our trade shows are in April and October in Hong Kong at the Asia World Expo. So a lot of people you know, hear about the airport expo in Hong Kong versus the downtown expo. So we're the airport expo in Hong Kong, and we do electronic shows, gifts and home shows, and uh, fashion shows. And then in addition to that, for the last couple of years, we've also been hosting every April and October uh, co-located with our trade shows. We have what we call the Global Sources Summit, which is um, three days of training co-located with the shows. A lot of sourcing training, sourcing tactics from uh, industry leaders and experts. And then also you get a chance to walk the show. And there's also quite a bit of content on, you know, selling online and tactics, um, in particular with uh, selling on Amazon. And what's the name of, uh, is it the Global Sources Exhibitions? Is that the name of your guys' show? Yes. So we're the Global Sources Exhibitions is uh, the names of the show. And then we have different categories. You'll see Global Sources Electronics, Global Sources Mobile Electronics, Global Sources Gifts and Home, and Global Sources Fashion Show. Those are kind of the umbrella brands. And then if you go online to our website, you'll see the same product categories that you can search online as well. And comparing like your, your, your online interface, Global Sources versus Alibaba, what would you say is different between you guys? Okay, yeah. So we, we both are obviously um, online catalogs where you can go online and you can search for um, products, search for manufacturers and search for traders. When we talk to buyers who you know, use our website, what they tell us is that in general, a bigger percentage of the, fac- of the uh, companies on Global Sources tend to be factories. So for people who are in particular looking for that, they can take a look at our website and see whether they can find factories. What we also do is we do a lot of um, curation and editorial content. So if you go onto our website, you can see we have an analyst choice team that kind of um, sifts through the market and tries to look for new trending products. We also have, I mean, if you go on our website and take a look, we have a pretty clean interface. So we have a lot of filters. You can filter by certification, filter by factory, filter by trading company. We also have certifications linking to third-party databases. So if certifications are important to you, you can also take a look at some of the certifications with some of the suppliers on our website and look at that certifications on third-party databases. I mean, at the end of the day, we're both online catalogs and buyers should kind of take a look at all the sites and see kind of what's appropriate for them. But we're definitely... 
an option for sourcing for you know buyers looking for quality suppliers from Asia. Uh, yeah, and we're planning on doing, if you're a, in the e-commerce field community, we're planning on doing a meetup in October for community members because so many people go over there for the Global Sourcing Summit, for for the mega show, for the Global Sourcing Expeditions, and also for the Canton Fair. It's just, it's go time in October and we want to get a group of people. Uh, I want to kind of have a, a headquarters for all all members. So if you're uh, in the community, stay tuned for that. Cameron, what, how do people source? Maybe we can do a couple approaches. I'm curious and getting your, your advice on purely sourcing online. Let's say somebody's like just in the US, for example, and they want to source a product online. And then maybe we can dive in a little bit deeper to heading on over to, to China and Asia and sourcing there. But how do you source products with a competitive advantage online? It seems like most people, you know, everyone has access to Alibaba to, to your guys' catalog, global sources. At least in 2017, connecting with factories is, is not it's fairly straightforward. So what do the good, the winners do when they're sourcing from afar? Is it, do you feel like sourcing is an even game at this point and it's just mo- mostly on the marketing and the branding side and those are the people who win? Or are there some tricks in terms of sourcing using the online catalogs that people that really do well employ? Well, what I would say is during the sourcing stage, you don't really win, but you can definitely lose if you don't do things you know, properly. So I'm sure that you know, you've heard a lot of horror stories of people, you know, sourcing product, not getting what they were expecting, you know, opening up a container once it gets to the U.S. and kind of having a disaster on their hands. So I would say, you know, the stage where you can do a lot of where you can get a much, much better price for the exact same widget than, you know, someone else who's also sourcing is pretty much over. You're not going to, you know, get a $10 widget for $5 and everyone else gets it for $10. So what you can do during the sourcing stage is you really want to get a fair price for what you're looking for. And even more importantly, you want to make sure that what you're looking for is what you end up getting. And that's kind of where the way that you deal with the suppliers, the contract that you sign, the purchase order that you that you know that you sign, the bill of materials that you give them, that's where that's that becomes very, very important. And what we see is when when Buyers and suppliers do have problems, and the end result is that the buyers don't necessarily get what they want. It's almost always because they weren't very clear with their requirements. They didn't check in on the process and see how things were going. And that's kind of what led to, or they or they made rather big assumptions about what was going to happen. And then that led to bad results. So, you know, you asked at the beginning, is branding and marketing the most important? I would say yes. It's really about getting what you want from China, you know, with the exact specifications at a fair price. And then from there, really working on the marketing and branding so you can, you know, stand apart on your online website or wherever you're, you know, wherever you're selling. Yeah. So in terms of how that would translate in terms of using the catalogs from afar, what would that look like? Would that be just like making sure you you really make sure to ask for samples for everything you're thinking about buying a lot of? Was it is it crucial to look for for you know really making sure that you're working with the factory versus the middleman? What are the what are the big parts to make sure that actually happens? Well, I, I think the most important thing is to spread your net wide. If you and don't be rushed. So take your time and spread your net wide. So when you go onto any of these catalogs and source you want to look for as many qualified, you know, as qualified manufacturers or trading companies as you can find. And then you basically want to start asking for samples. And when you get those samples, you want to, you know, very, very clearly evaluate those samples. And depending on whether you're doing a customized product, um, which is obviously a lot more complicated, then you're going to have to take the further step to 
you know, work with a supplier to customize it or whether it's kind of an off the shelf product, the steps can get can be uh, quite a bit more simple. But I mean, it's really about talking to as many suppliers as possible, seeing the quality of their samples, but also seeing the quality of their communication, the way that they're kind of dealing with you. Are they getting back to you quickly? Are they answering all the questions that you're asking? Or are they all over the place? And then you can do a complete evaluation. You know, how are the samples? How is their communication? You know, how is it going with that supplier? And then in the end, you got to, you know, make a decision. Obviously, if you can get over to the, if you have a reasonably um, large order and you can get over to the factory in China or the, you know, the company in China, that makes things, you know, all the easier. And then, like I said, lastly, but, you know, most importantly is get all your ducks in a row when it comes to um, the way you set up the contract, you know, all the details about what you want. And then if you do all that, you know, you rarely see problems. So I may have a couple of questions on, let's say you're going over to Asia, you're going to fly over, you'll be in Hong Kong for your vendor sourcing event. What do you get, let's say you fly into Hong Kong, do you get better factories or pricing going to shows on the mainland versus Hong Kong? Hong Kong's easier to get to, you know, there's less of a barrier to get in. Is that the case or do most of the factories, you know, the lion's share of, of you know, even the great ones inland, they're going to come to those Hong Kong shows? Yeah, I would say the vast majority of kind of high end factories or high quality factories are, are either going to Hong Kong or, you know, they're in both. There are some factories, if you've walked around Canton Fair and, you know, our show or some of the other shows downtown, you might even see the same factory in, you know, in both shows. So that does happen. I would say, no, you're not really going to see lower prices unless you're maybe looking at a commoditized product. So if you're looking at, you know, a mop or something that's, you know, really very, very standard. Um, it's coming out of a public mold. So, you know, the mold is out there in the market and it's really just a, you know, a, an injection molded piece of plastic. Then you might get a lower price if you're going to the mainland, but it might not even be Canton Fair. You might want to go to some other local trade shows or things like that. So, but with, you know, products that aren't quite as commoditized, you know, especially things like electronics or products that have a design component, I don't think, you know, the pricing is pretty, um, I would say, is pretty standard no matter where you go to those shows. What what tips would you have? You go to some of these shows, you hear about Canton just being, you just, you know, you, you get lost because <laughs> it's so big. And you so much ground to cover, even if you're going to look at, you know, a very specific niche widget. Maybe there's, you know, 20, 30 people that, uh, that offer that. And you've got a limited amount of time and you are you're trying to size people up very, very quickly. So what do you, what do you recommend when you're walking a floor that you look for those, you know, maybe cheat sheet ways that you can evaluate someone as quickly as possible and let's say, you know, 45 seconds to 60 seconds? Well, I mean, what I would say is if you've got a very particular widget in mind, no matter which trade show you go to, you should kind of very carefully evaluate each supplier and you should spend time with each supplier. But for, you know, cheat sheet ways of doing things, you can look at, you know, the way their booth is designed. So you can, you know, you can generally tell, especially if you're looking for something with a design component, something where you want the supplier to, you know, help you, uh, help you there. You can walk by their booth. You can see how is it laid out? You know, what's the booth design? How is it decorated? You can generally see, you know, does a supplier care about that kind of thing? Are they just putting, you know, the standard booth decoration for the show and just throwing stuff on shelves? Or do they have, you know, their um, posters? Are their posters laid out very well? Is the marketing done fairly well? I think you can do that on a pass-by. 
and just kind of see. And you can definitely tell, you know, who are the, call it, who will be the easier ones to work with when you do that. So that's the kind of the easiest walk by way, I would say. What about uh, translation? Is it safe to assume that most people who are going to be exhibiting at one of these Hong Kong shows are going to have at least a working level of English? Like, is it worth somebody hiring an interpreter or not really? Is that more if you go kind of you know, really deep inland China? Yeah, I would say, I mean, everyone at the show speaks, will have somebody speaking English. It's true that the person who's speaking English will, will likely be the salesperson. So the boss, if he's at the booth, there's a good chance that he, especially if it's a factory, trading company, the boss might speak English. But if it's a factory, there's a very good chance that they won't speak English. If you have a technical product or if you have a question about customization, you might also get the engineer involved. So if the engineer is there, he probably won't speak English either. But you can always get the salesperson to translate for you. So I would say it's not really necessary at, you know, at the, you know, foreigner facing show. So those are the ones in Hong Kong, the ones that are mainly catering to foreigners in China as well. It's not really necessary to have a translator. What about you mentioned trade companies? Is there a, uh, how many trade companies masquerade as the original manufacturer? And is there a, an easy way to be able to differentiate between them? Well, so I think when I talk to foreign buyers, they have this clear picture in their mind of there's, you know, there's a, there's a black line between what is a factory and what is a trader. The reality is that, you know, if you have a factory, that doesn't make you the factory for a specific product that you're selling. So, you know, most factories that you see are actually traders as well. So they may be manufacturing some things, but they're probably also, you know, getting a lot of the product that they're selling from other places. You also have, you know, factories when they're manufacturing for things like, you know, electronics, like tablets and like things like that. They're really not. They're just assembling goods that come from other places. So they get a case, they get a chipset, they get a screen, they put it all together and put it in a box. So, like, I guess the main thing I want to get across is there is no black line between trader, you know, traders and factories. What you want when you talk to these companies is you want them to be honest with you. So, you know, the ideal situation is they tell you for this product, are they manufacturing it, you know, from scratch? Are they just assembling it or are they a trader? Um, and then depending on your needs, you can decide whether that works for you. And, you know, traders have their advantages. Factories also have their advantages. What would be the, I think the, the advantage for a factory is, is for most people, it's pretty obvious. You probably get, you know, direct sourcing, you get a better price. For the trader, what are the advantages? Would it, would it be that they maybe have a, a deeper network of relationships and sourcing relationships? And so, so therefore they can get you more things with a single point of contact and perhaps be able to customize things more, more easily? Yeah, exactly. So if they have a bunch of partner factories, they can work across you know, not necessarily all product lines, but they might be able, if you have two sourcing products, they might be able, or two sourcing projects, they might be able to do both for you. Also, people in general, of course, people say that the trading companies have better communication skills. So they fight for your business a little bit more. And, you know, their English is probably, probably better. Their marketing is probably better. So some people find that it's just generally easier to work with them. Also, in, you know, in certain situations, they can get a better price for you than if you went direct to the factory. So if you call up the factory, it's different than them having a longstanding relationship with the factory. So there's not necessarily, you know, an issue with, you know, you getting a lower price at a factory. And you just have to, you know, work the process and kind of see what you're getting. And if you're getting, you know, the, you know your target price from someone that you know is a trader, 
but you know that they can get the product that you want. They can work with the factory. The factory listens to them. They understand your requirements. Then, you know, there's nothing wrong with working with a trader. And we get, you know, different kind of buyers who, you know, like working with different kind of suppliers. Any, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, Cameron. Any tips for surviving one of these trips from someone who is, is coming in from, like, let's say the U.S. or maybe Europe? Yeah, you fly in, you know, you're most likely jet lagged. You've got, you know, let's say a week. You hit the floor. You're walking miles and miles and miles. Perhaps maybe in the evenings you go out with some manufacturers, especially if you have existing relationships and they get you all liquored up. And then, you know, the next morning you're feeling rough. Like, so any, any, uh, tips from, you know, your time in the trenches on how to actually be able to come back from one of these trips without looking like you've aged a decade and, you know, a two week period. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first thing is you just mentioned going out and getting liquored up. So be careful there because uh, <laughs> that is, uh, that is, you know, a true stereotype of China, depending on who you go out with. So the Chinese liquor baijiu is, is pretty dangerous stuff. I've had my, my family over to China when I got uh, married and, you know, we all drank quite a bit of Baijiu and I can tell you firsthand, it's pretty dangerous stuff. So first thing I would say is watch out for it. <laughs> you know, next, I think it's all pretty, pretty much common sense. So, you know, these shows are huge. You know, when I'm at the show helping to, you know, run the show, I look at my iPhone at the end of the day and I've got, you know, 25,000 to 30,000 steps. So I don't know how many miles that is, maybe 10 miles or 15 miles. You're walking a lot. So, you know, running shoes, you don't have to dress up, you know, in a suit and tie at these things. Some people do, but I would go for, you know, running shoes that you can walk a lot. Um, you see some women in high heels. I have no idea how they do that, but I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't recommend it. You know, other things, like I said, common sense. So look carefully at where you're staying. I would say at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, you want to make transportation as easy as possible. So look for hotels that either have direct connections to the subway that will go to the venue or have, um, you know, free shuttle bus services that go to the venue. You don't want to live too far away. If you've walked, you know, 30,000 steps during the day, you probably don't want to take an hour and a half, you know, ride home after that. And at some of these venues, at the end of the day, everyone's leaving at the same time. There's, you know, 5, 10, 20,000 booths. So it does get pretty hectic. Other things, you know, get a get a local SIM card for your phone before you go. I think you can get those, you know, pretty easily online in the U.S. Maybe on, you know, eBay or some of these other some of these other websites. You probably want to download WeChat. So I think most Americans have you have you ever heard of WeChat before? I have heard of it. I heard it's huge in China, but I've never even seen anyone use it in the U.S. But I I live in Montana, so that doesn't necessarily mean mean much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so WeChat is kind of the the WhatsApp of of China. So if you go to any of these trade shows and you want to kind of, kind of keep talking to suppliers afterwards, you can add their WeChat. It's you know very common. The suppliers will also kind of when you do that, the suppliers will kind of get the idea that you you know you're not necessarily a newbie and you kind of understand what's going on. I've heard good things about translation apps. So I've heard that the technology is kind of get into the get into the place where. You know, some of these Chinese English translation apps are pretty good. So for getting around town, for taking taxis in mainland China, it's probably necessary in Hong Kong, a little bit less so. And then, you know, some of the tips that, you know, everyone says when you're going to China, don't expect English from, you know, the taxi drivers from getting around. So always take your hotel name, your hotel name, hotel address in Chinese. And then I guess lastly, if you're coming for a week, it's a little bit tough. But if you can squeeze out a couple more days, then, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle, you might want to take a couple of days off. 
and take a look around Hong Kong or, you know, wherever you are in China, because there's lots of, you know, lots of stuff to do. If your feet are hurting, foot massages all over the place, which is something that I don't think you really do in the U.S., <laughs> yeah, <that is laughs> but much. it's an experience. It's a painful experience, but it's uh, it's interesting, and there's lots of stuff to do. So if you can avoid doing seven straight days of trade show fairs, I would uh, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, how do you like living in Hong Kong? Because you, are you Canadian? Is that right? Am I remembering that right? That's right, yeah. I'm from uh, Toronto. Okay, so I mean, you grew up uh, grew up in Toronto, uh, and you spent, it sounds like, plus or minus a decade-ish, uh, I think, over there, and a lot of time, I'm guessing, in Hong Kong. How is it? How do you like living there? So, yeah, I've been in China for... I think it's coming on 15 years. Wow. Uh, most of my time has been uh, living in mainland China, but we, you know, we organize the trade shows in Hong Kong. Global Sources is headquartered in Hong Kong, so I'm kind of running around, you know, running around all the time. I love it. I love it. I, uh, for the last 15 years, it's just been, you know, seeing a society transform around you. So I think the kind of people are now saying that China you know, in the last 30 or 40 years since they opened up, it's the biggest societal transformation in the history of the world. So it's like, you know, popping yourself right in the middle of that and having a having a front row seat. It's been, uh, you know, a life-changing experience. Absolutely amazing. I want to ask you, kind of in closing, a couple questions on a, on a more macro level. We've been, at least in the U.S., and kind of in, in with, with sellers I've talked to, seeing more Chinese factories getting involved in selling directly to the U.S. market, you know, particularly through Amazon and Easy Post, things like that. Have you seen a lot of that? Is that something that uh, that you see Chinese factories are really getting excited about and going after, or is that something where you still see barriers based on kind of a, some of the cultural aspects of of commerce? What uh, what do you see on that on that front? Well, I would say for U.S. sellers, there's good news and there's bad news here. So you know. The bad news is, you know, when when these factory owners have, you know, dream at night, when they go to sleep and they start dreaming, they do dream about going direct to the U.S. or going direct overseas. So that is definitely, you know, a goal of theirs. When they see they don't really, you know, think too much about some of what your extra costs are. So, you know, what you're paying to, you know, Amazon as an, you know, as a referral fee or what you're paying to Amazon as an FBA fee. What they do see is that, uh, you know, I'm buying, I'm selling something for $3 and then somebody else is turning around and selling it for $15 or $20 on Amazon. That's the, you know, the bad news. The good news is you kind of hinted at it, which is they're not really great marketers. They don't have um, that kind of experience. Their experience is in, you know, production. So they're very good at, you know, designing products or at least manufacturing products. And that's kind of where their specialties lie. So when we look at, you know, the, the guys who are actually successfully selling on Amazon from China, it's actually generally not the factories. It's private labelers within China. So it's the guys who, you know, have a have a pretty good price advantage. So, you know, they can deal directly with the factories. They're right beside them. Their time to market is pretty quick because they're here. But they also have, you know, a certain level of marketing skills. So companies in China are definitely doing that. Um, if you're a, you know, a U.S. company and you're doing a pure arbitrage play, so you're sourcing commoditized products and, you know, anyone can source them for that price. You're buying something on a website and just kind of stamping your, your unknown brand on it and putting it up on Amazon. The days where that can be successful, I would say, are close to over. But if you have, you know, a compelling product, you sourced it for a fair price, you have a great, you know, website or you have a great brand story, you're good at marketing, 
then you know it's it's blue sky. There's there's still a lot of things that you can do. So are you still seeing a lot of opportunity for people? Even even if they're not developing their own proprietary product overseas, let's say they, they get something that's existing, but they're able to maybe introduce it to a market that is off Amazon, maybe it appeals to a certain buyer or niche a little bit better than others. Are you still seeing a lot of people being able to source really effectively using that model? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's the same as any other business. If you can create a moat around your product, you know, design differences, brand differences, you're obviously going to be in a lot in a lot better place. So if you've got, you know, design differences and brand differences and marketing differences, that's probably the easiest. But if you just, you know, around a standard product, if you can build a brand story, you know, a compelling brand story, or if you can even differentiate through things like packaging, you know, there's still a lot of room out there. What, uh, you know, the last couple months since the election, we've been seeing a lot of protectionist rhetoric out of the U.S. And I, I'm curious, how is that playing out in China? Is that something people are worried about? Are they thinking about it? What are the thoughts there with, especially on the sourcing side and the factory side? Well, I would say quietly concerned. They're very much in wait and see mode. I think that, you know, they all realize that there's not much they can do about it. So they're just kind of waiting to see what happens. And I think that everyone in China was very happy to see that Donald Trump first target for, you know, trade policy was Canada rather than China. <laughs> oh, great. Cameron, this has been fantastic. I, I want to close really quickly, a little more jovially, we've been pretty serious here about, about uh, sourcing, but um, do a lightning round with you. It's something I do with everyone who comes on the show. And feel free to answer these with just, you know, really quick, obviously, you know, as the name implies, lightning fast answer. So, First question is, for you, how much money would be enough? What would be your number where you'd feel comfortable never working again unless you wanted to? Money in the bank, that is. All right. Let's say, uh, let's say 10 million. But I don't think I'm, I'm going to get there with Global Sources, so I, I fully expect to have a full career. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many hours a week would you say you work? Probably somewhere around 60. If there's one thing that was going to bring upon the fall of civilization in the next 25 years, what would it be? Oh, man, I'm going to have to fall back on. I think it's like Elon Musk and maybe Stephen Hawking. I think they say it's AI. AI, that's it's going to come get us, huh? Yeah, exactly. If you had to leave Global Sources and go work for any other company in the world, you couldn't start your own. You had to work for a company, but you could pick which one it would be. Who would it be? Uh, well, I think most of the guys on your podcast are actually have their own business. So I think I should be allowed to start my own business because that is kind of my... Uh, <laughs> You know, that would be a dream of mine. So I kind of hear your podcast and hear what other guys are doing. And it's really exciting. So I think I'm going to cheat a little bit. But if I, uh, you know, if I left Global Sources, I think it would be doing the entrepreneurial side. What do you spend most of your discretionary money on? Uh, probably travel. So, you know, my wife and I try to get, you know, go all over the place and kind of see the world. And then every year I have to spend a ton of money to get back to Canada, you know, so I pro probably travel. And if you could live anywhere in the in the world, cost wasn't an issue, practicality wasn't an issue, and your entire community was transplanted there, so you'd have an existing community when you landed. You only had to worry about the environment. Where would you live? Well, probably one of the nicest places I've ever been was Australia. So I, I, when I describe Australia, I think of it as kind of Canada, but with monumentally better weather. So I think <laughs> I think maybe Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and this last one, I just stole this actually today from Mastermind Talks. It's on their survey. If you could study with one expert in the world, who would it be and what would you study? Well, I think, you know, I work at Global Sources. I run a pretty big organization with lots of people. So when I see companies or, you know, these CEOs that run big organizations, I would like to learn from them. So maybe someone like, 
you know, Elon Musk, you know, visionary, but also somebody who is able to, you know, run a large organization. The guy's incredible, isn't he? I mean, his ability to run two organizations and I mean, to do the kind of things he is like, I'd, I'd hate to see the fallout on his personal life or, or if there was one, <laughs> but it's unbelievable how much he gets done. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess you got, you got to balance the personal and, and the work. Cameron, this has been fantastic. I mean, before we go, could you let people know listening? Of course, globalsources.com is your online front, but maybe any details about the uh, exhibitions that are coming up as well as your guys' summit? Yeah. So if you go on globalsources.com, all the information is there. You'll see on the homepage, there's also, you know, tabs for to look into our exhibitions. Like I said, our exhibitions are three phases. So electronics, mobile electronics, gifts and home. And then in the third phase, it's uh, fashion. Those happen every April and every October for the specific dates you can go um, online and see. Our sourcing catalog, www.globalsources.com, is um, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. So if you're looking for products for your next sourcing project, please do go take a look. And then if you go to globalsources.com backslash summit, I think actually it's forward slash now. I keep getting that mixed up. But anyway, slash summit, you'll see information on our next uh, three-day online sourcing summit. I believe the dates are the 17th to the 20th of October and you can, you know, sign up there. And, you know, if we um, this time saw even more e-commerce fuel members at the summit, obviously we would be thrilled. Yeah, we're going to try to get a, a good crew of people out there. And like I mentioned, we'll be having a meetup going on in Hong Kong in October. Details to come in our in our private community. If you're not a member or if you're not aware of it, we run a private community for our high six and seven figure e-commerce store owners. You have to be either an experienced professional or a store owner with at least a quarter million in annual sales uh, to join. If that sounds interesting to you, uh, head on over to ecommercefuel.com and you can learn more about the community and how to apply there. Cameron, uh, fantastic talking with you. Looking forward to hopefully meeting you this October. And thanks so much for coming on. Great. Looking forward to it. Thanks very much, Andrew.